welcome to you as well. Hope you've had a good week, and I'm glad you're with us this morning. We've been in a series on Jonah. We called it Lessons from the Fish Hotel. I got a lot of friends that are in the Fish Hotel. You know, you can't check out. God has to get you out. They don't honor American Express or Capital One or Visa. It's usually a very nasty experience. The whale has to kind of vomit you out on the beach. Not, not a very pretty sight, but at least you're out. And we've had an enjoyable time looking at this series over three weeks. This is our fourth week, and this is our last lesson. This one may be the most important of all because it answers the question, who does God really love? Is He for Democrats? Is He for Republicans? Is He for Hispanics or African American or Caucasian or Asians? Uh, uh, is He for people who think like I think, act like I think, or those people or that group? This may clear up the confusion for you, and it's all about grace. Wonderful lesson. So I'm going to read from Jonah chapter 4, first 11 verses. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. God had, God had changed his mind about destroying Nineveh. And the only Christian in here is Jonah, and he's the only one mad about it. God's not going to beat up somebody that he wants them to burn. And a lot of Christians are like that in this country. So this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to Congress and to the president <laughs> and to Rome. He complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home, Lord, that you'd do this? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. Boy, I'm glad he is. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. You need to hear that. God is not after you to hurt you. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord said, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to Nineveh. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, and it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he said. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because this plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, it's amazing. You feel sorry about this stupid plant that you didn't put here, that I did. You did nothing to put it here. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh, a city with more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals, shouldn't I feel sorry about a great city as you do about a stupid plant? This is, you know, God's got some pretty good conversations. 
One thing about music, sometimes it can sound beautiful to one person and absolutely horrible to somebody else. Every generation hates the next generation's music. My parents hated my music. I hated my kids' music. I'm an old 60s Motown, and your kids hate your music, and you'll hate their music. You know, that's life. And it gets us to the climax of the story of Jonah. God sings his song of grace, and when he sings it to old Jonah, who's running away, rebelling, and in disobedient, oh, Jonah, he's good with that. But when God sings grace to Nineveh, oh, that's another story. That doesn't sound good to Jonah. There's something wrong with God's world. You know, God tells Jonah, go preach against Nineveh. Why? Well, God says, because its evil has come up before my face. So there's disharmony. Something's off in God's world. There's sin, there's violence, there's, uh, there's murder, there are lost people, and God can't tolerate it. Kind of keeps him up at night. So he's angry at injustice and violence and oppression. He's mad about that. But the other part is, he keeps loving Nineveh. He loves the oppressed, and he even loves the oppressor. He loves everybody, so he has to act. Now, there is also a harmony word that keeps reoccurring throughout the book of Jonah. It is the word great. God says, the evil of Nineveh has come before my face, so go to that great city, the great city of Nineveh. And when Jonah runs away, God sends a great wind and a great storm to stop Jonah. Then the ship gets threatened, and we're told the sailors cast lots to see who's responsible for the evil. Only this time, the evil doesn't occur because of Nineveh or pagans or because of the godless. You hear that from a lot of preachers. The sailors cast lot to see who's responsible for all the trouble, and it all points in one direction, Jonah, the only Christian in the crowd, and he is the problem causing the problem. Now to the people reading that book, the Israelites, that doesn't sound good. That's disharmony. This is the this is disobedience, not of the pagans, but of God's prophet. And boy, they can't stand that. Jonah cried out to God from the fish. God forgives his disobedience. God saves his miserable life. God resolves the disharmony. And now Jonah thinks that's okay. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, but it's pretty clear. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't like the Ninevites. So Jonah walks around Nineveh saying, 40 more days and you're toast. You're going down. Now, that's kind of a vague sermon. No mention about God, God's character, God's, uh, you know, no mention about sin or injustice or violence, no mention of repentance or forgiveness or mercy. I mean, Jonah isn't putting any effort into this at all. He doesn't care. He's just kind of phoning in. He's summarizing that what God told him to say in a brief statement, not giving the whole deal. He said, in 40 days, none of us going down. That's all he said. He's mean. But the strangest thing happens. People listen. They begin to respond. And think about it from Jonah's perspective. He didn't bring his A-game to this revival, just this dumb, lame message. But the people's hearts get broken, their eyes fill with tears, because the Spirit of God has come on them and convicted them of sin. This is sort of national repentance. Could you imagine if our nation, America, experienced a repentant spirit? I, I can't imagine. Well, all the people of Nineveh did. And it's so widespread, not only the king repents, and not only the poorest and the weakest and the richest and the most powerful 
Even the animals wear sackcloth. You ever see an animal repent? We have cats and dogs around our house. Lily the dog sleeps in a large kennel at night. She always gets a treat before we shut her in for the night. She always gets excited knowing she's going to get a treat. Sometimes she does a bad thing. She knows she's done a bad thing. And when it happens, she'll stay in the back of the kennel, and she won't get excited to come out and get a treat. She knows she's been bad, and she just kennels herself up. Sometimes a cat does a bad thing. You think a cat ever repents? No, a cat never does. Cats are evil. It's just the Bible truth. The, the, point, the point of the story is the people of Nineveh are overwhelmed by the awareness of their sin, and it's not because Jonah gave an eloquent sermon. It's just God. It's just the Spirit of God falling on people. That can happen anywhere, anytime, at any moment. Their hearts are broken, and they say, oh, God, we've been so wrong and so bad, and they repent the best they know how. They pull out all the stops. Even the animals are forced to wear sackcloth, and God looks at this poor, miserable people with compassion and mercy. And we're told later on, when he talks about Nineveh, there are people who don't know their right from their left. That's just a way of talking about people who don't know right from wrong or up from down or God from a hole in the ground. God being God is filled with compassion. I didn't grow up ever hearing that. When the Lord saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, he relented of what he was going to do. God had grace. He says, I forgive. Now there's harmony. They've turned away from their violence and aggression and sin, and now they're repenting, and now they're receiving grace. Now the story could end except for one tiny little note of disharmony. Jonah looks at all this, and you'd think he'd be thrilled. This is the greatest spiritual achievement in his life or ministry or at that time in the world. An entire city of these hated Assyrians are brought to God through his preaching, and he wasn't even preaching any good. Because when God moves, it's not about human effort. Jonah has never been used by God like this in his life. In chapter 4 of Jonah, it says, this change of plans upset Jonah greatly, and he became very angry. Jonah can't sleep. He can't take it. He's, a, he's, he's mad. It just can't be happening. He looks at Nineveh getting God's grace, being forgiven, and he says, this is evil. Not just evil, real evil, he says. Now, this is the only time in the story these two words are brought together. What is great to God, which is grace to Nineveh, being forgiven, is great evil to Jonah. Christians don't like it when God's good to people he doesn't like. They don't like. I'm sorry, suck it up. You just have to deal with it. Nothing you can do about it. This is, this is, this is our God, you know. Jonah was okay when grace was given to him. But now it's going to Nineveh, and now Jonah's not okay. And that's the way a lot of Christians are. It's okay for me to get it, but I don't want you to get it. You're not as nice as I am. So Jonah's mad. At the start of the book, you know, uh, to any Israelite, or you and me, we think God's big problem is, what are you going to do about that bad city, Nineveh? But that's not God's big problem. God's big problem is not that great city. God says, what am I going to do about Jonah? What am I going to do about this guy who supposedly represents me, who's smug, superior, resentful, prejudiced, and has an unloving heart? That's often the church. I'm telling you, more so than you, than you know, that's God's big problem is us. 
Now, for the second time in this story, because it's a two-part story, for the second time, Jonah prays. In the first part of the story, remember, he prays when he's desperate, when he's in the fish, when it looks like he's going to die, and he says, oh God, oh God, help me, forgive me, let me live, forgive my disobedience, and God gives him grace. Then God gives grace to Nineveh through Jonah. It says in chapter 4, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, please, isn't this what I said when I was still home? This is why I tried to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So now just take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. What an unbelievable dumb prayer. The first time Jonah's going to die, he prays, God, let me live. This time he's in the middle of an amazing triumph in life, and he prays, God, let me die. Jonah doesn't really want to die. He's just like a toddler saying, God, I want my way, and I want it now, and I want to see the Ninevites burn. That's what he's doing. Please, he says, twice in this verse. Not a polite please, but a two-syllable please. Please. Give me a break. You've got to be kidding. Grace to Nineveh. I cannot believe this. It'd be like us watching God do something like that in North Korea. Like, what? Yeah. I knew you were gracious and a compassionate God. Now, this is the most famous confession of God's identification in the history of Israel because it's from Exodus 34. When Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Suggestions, I'm sorry, the Ten Commandments, and Moses says, now God, before you leave, show me your glory. Then one of the most holy texts of Israel is, and God passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. He's given him his name, not just his title. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth. Now they knew those words like we know the words to happy birthday. Happy birthday. Only Jonah leaves a word out. And it would be obvious to any Israelite reading this text, it'd be like having a wedding ceremony here and me saying, I take you to be my wedded spouse for better or worse in sickness and health for richer. Amen. I left something out. What word did I leave out? Poor. Everybody in the audience would want to come up and correct me for the error because if somebody only says, I'll be yours for richer, I'll be yours as long as you don't have any stretch marks, I'll be... I'll be yours as long as you don't sag and I get what I want. They're sending a message. And this is what Jonah is doing right here. The text of Exodus 34 reads, The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. But Jonah leaves out and truth. And Jonah leaves out and truth. And everybody knows what's going on. He's impugning the character of God. Grace? Oh, yeah. Sure. Abounding in grace? What about truth, God? You said you were going to burn them, and I took you at your word. I told them 40 days, Nineveh, and it's Sodom and Gomorrah time. It's hellfire and brimstone. And now, it's not going to happen. I'm going to look like a fool. And what's worse, I'm going to go back to Israel, and I'm going to look to them like I like the Ninevites. But I don't like the Ninevites. And God, I thought you didn't like them either. I say, you know you've made God in your own image, when he hates everybody you do, and he doesn't. Yeah. God is patient with Jonah. Patient, my God. Jonah goes on a tirade. He impugns God's character, and all God says in return, is it right for you to be mad? Jonah doesn't give any answer. Jonah gives God the silent treatment. 
And all the married folks know what that's like. In the next part of the story, we're told Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And he waited to see what's going to happen. Now, Jonah's still hoping. 40 days and Nineveh's going to burn. And this is an odd little story you might have wondered about. Then the Lord God provided a gourd and made it grow up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the gourd. But at dawn the next day, the Lord sent a worm. That seems a little dirty, doesn't it? Which chewed the gourd so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, probably from San Antonio. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so it grew faint. He wanted to die. He said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the gourd? It is, Jonah said. I was so angry, I wish I were dead. Does this seem a little immature to anybody? It's like God is dealing with a five-year-old here. But understand, there's something going on way deeper than Jonah just worrying about getting a sunburn. The prophets were, among other things, kind of like performance artists. Often when God wanted to get a message through to his people, he, he would have his prophets not just say what he wanted, but they would act it out in a dramatic way, sometimes very shocking. God had one prophet named Hosea, and he had to go marry a prostitute. Now think about that. God does this to communicate to Israel their unfaithfulness to him. Another prophet, Ezekiel, had to lay on his side for 390 days. Dang, that's tough. There, there are, I preached a sermon years ago on things God only did once. And these were some of them, but pretty interesting. Over a year to get people thinking and talking about stuff laying on the ground 390 days. Now that was to illustrate his coming judgment. And always when that happened, the prophet was the actor, Israel is the audience, always, except once, right here. In this little drama, God's the actor, and he sends a gourd, then a worm, and then God sends the wind. Jonah is the audience. And what's happening here is that God wants to save Jonah now, not Nineveh. Poor old Jonah needs saving. It says in our text that Jonah had gone east of the city. Now, that's not just a random geographical detail. Israel was located on the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean is to the west of Israel. To the east were Israel's enemies. You might remember this. When Adam and Eve left Eden, they went east of Eden. There was a movie, wasn't there? East of Eden or a book? You don't know. Okay. There was. Cain, when he kills his brother Abel, Cain goes to the land of Nod, east of Eden. And now Jonah's going east to the place of God's enemies. Jonah is in the boiling sun, and God does an unexpected thing. Jonah is just mad, smoking mad about Nineveh, and he's sitting in the sun, and God sends him shade. Now, to us in the Western culture, that doesn't mean anything, but it's full of meaning for a Middle Eastern reader. For Israel, for a desert people, shade is loaded with image, and you see it all through the Old Testament. Psalms 121, verse 5 and 6, the Lord watches over you, the Lord is your shade at your right hand, the sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. So God will protect you as your shade. Psalm 17, verse 8. Hide me in the shade of your wings from all the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. So over and over you get this image in the Old Testament, shade means to be under the protection of God. Protection from what? 
protection from our enemies. In fact, the phrase that says that the gourd was to ease Jonah's discomfort says in the Hebrew, to deliver him from evil. Now, we pray that, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. Jonah knew where the evil was, where the discord was. Oh, yeah, it's out there in Nineveh. It's those people who aren't like me. That's why Jonah's very happy about the gourd in our text. And then the text literally says, and Jonah rejoiced in the gourd with great joy. So to Jonah, it's not just about physical protection. It just means to him, when the gourd goes up and I'm under God's shade, old Nineveh's going down. God's going to protect his people. God's going to destroy their enemies. That's why Jonah rejoices in this gourd. He thinks this means Nineveh's going to get it. He's rejoicing in the destruction of the people he hates. Nineveh's going down. It's a funny thing. Jonah received grace when he hit the bottom, but now he's offended by that same grace when he goes to somebody else. Mm. Jonah has this superior, judgmental, unloving heart. And God has a harder time saving Jonah than he does a city of these Assyrians, Nineveh. Kind of a funny thing, isn't it? When, you know, some of the hardest people for God to deal with are Christians. Really. When Jesus came, the people he had the hardest time were, were not the people everybody considered the big sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, you know, uh, not the people that would be associated with a place like Nineveh. No, no. The people Jesus had the hardest time with were the religious people. They considered themselves spiritually mature, the elite. They had these superior, judgmental, unloving hearts. We're it. We're God's choice. And if you're not like us, get away from us. Research in our country revealed that people outside the church consider those inside the church as having superior, judgmental, unloving hearts and attitudes. And quite often, we earned it. That's sad. I always wondered about that. I mean, don't you ever just sometimes wonder about stuff? I mean, I wondered why Jesus was always around bad people and the church in America can't get them to come. Just wondering. I just kind of wonder. I've often wondered over coffee. I, I, I always imagine a lot of things, but some of them will never come true, but some of them are worth imagining anyway for my entertainment. I often wondered if Jesus showed up now, I think you think he's going to come in a white robe or something and little naked angels going around his head. I, I think you're nuts. They didn't do that when he was on earth. But if he came today, as he came in Israel, I kind of wonder, what do you look like? Yeah, what would he be wearing? Forget all that. What would he say? What would he say? I guarantee you, the national church killed him, and the church today would kill him. They would not like his message. They didn't like it then. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He would upset everybody here, I guarantee you. Even if you're a little more moderate or, or liberal, I guarantee you he'd shake you. If his own family got shaken by him, got offended by him, and his main disciples got offended by him, so much so they were going to leave and go away and go back to fishing, everybody got offended in him. I'm thinking, you think it'd be any different if he came in today? I, that's just a question I can't answer. But my money, if I were a betting man, would be, yeah, he'd upset us. I can't believe it. I can't believe he said that in Washington. I can't believe he said, can't, what? 
Well, I never heard that in my life. You could hear it right now. He must be an imposter. He has a demon. That's exactly what they said about him when he showed up. He was with the wrong people. I kind of wonder sometimes, hey, we got the wrong people in church. I think it's the people outside that ought to be inside hearing good news. This is called good news. We're not booking guilt trips. Maybe we have some Jonah in all of us, right? Because we can put these people into categories that allow us to just dismiss them so fast. You know, some year ago, I hate to confess this, but it's true. A woman cut me off in her car, and I was so mad. And I don't know if she knew it or not. We both took the same exit and pulled into the same HEB grocery store parking lot. And I pulled up right beside her car, got out, and I said, ma'am, I want to tell you something. And she looked at me and she said, oh my gosh, you're the pastor of the church. I just started attending. You're Rick Godwin. What did you, what did you want to tell me? I, I said, I just want to tell you God loves you so much. I, <laughs> true confession. Or somebody else does something wrong, violates a law near me. Where's the policeman? Where is, where is the judge that's coming? I want him to get what's coming to him. Ah, oh, but I do something wrong. I violate a rule. And that blue light's flashing in my rearview mirror. And all of a sudden, I'm not crying out for justice. I want grace and mercy. Anybody with me? See, justice is when you get what's coming to you. Mercy is when you don't get what's coming to you. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us. See, so we've all got this Jonah inside where we think what we want is fairness, but it's not. What we want is not fairness. I want mercy. Mercy. How many times do we forget what Jonah forgot? People matter to God. Which people? All people matter to God. The waitress that rides public transportation because she can't afford a car to serve you a meal. You know, God looks at that individual and says, I wonder if people eating lunch at this nice restaurant, the busy people, the people with money. I wonder if they understand how much I love her. I wonder if they'll ever talk to her. I wonder if they'll ever stop to think she's got a life. She's got a story. She's got a dream. I wonder if they'll look at her the same way they would look at somebody big important, famous, high dollar, you know, high status, somebody who could do something for them. I wonder if they'll have my heart for that little woman. See, people matter to God, the jobless guy, the homeless guy, the wealthy guy, the successful guy. They matter to God. God is not like me. God doesn't look at categories like I do and think, well, people in that category, ah, oh, yeah, man, they're my kind of people. But those people in that category, I could let them go without any pain at all. Sad. People matter to God. Conservative and liberal people, atheists, New Age people, every color, every ethnic group, Caucasian people, African-American people, gay people, old people, rich and poor, every one of them matters to God. Depressed people, educated people, divorced people, people with different politics than yours, they matter to God. And when one of them is separated by sin from God, well, we're all separated from God by sin, if you think about it, before Jesus. We're all Ninevites. We're all Jonah. And it just drives God crazy, breaks his heart. So he says, what will I do? And Jesus says, Father, I'll go. I'll go to earth. I'll go to Nineveh. I'll go to San Antonio. I'll tell him. And Jesus did. And we hung him on a cross. 
And all that was the great evil. All of the evil, all of the darkness, all of the brokenness in this world was put on Jesus. But God was doing something great on that cross. God was reconciling the world to himself. He was overcoming the disharmony and sin of the world with the beauty of sacrificial love. They put Jesus' body in the tomb, and they thought, that's all there is to that. We're done. But on the third day, the God who spoke to the fish on the third day to vomit Jonah spoke, and that stone was rolled away from Jesus' tomb. And Jesus rose again, and he started this new community, never been one like it, called the church. There had never been a people like this. Nobody was an outsider. Anybody who wanted to could come in if they would repent and receive Jesus, and they got to be a son or a daughter of God, Jew, Gentile, slave, rich, poor, Roman, barbarian, male, female, didn't make any difference because people matter to God. And when Jesus did that, remember, they had all kind of fits. Oh, Peter wasn't going to go to a Gentile's house. He wouldn't touch their food. And Jesus had to let a sheet down three times with unclean pork that we would all rejoice in on the 4th of July with barbecue and sausage. He said, don't you call unclean what I've cleansed. And don't you let anybody convince you if Jesus has cleansed you, you're unclean, regardless of your past. What he makes clean is clean forever. He said, your sin and iniquity I will remember no more. I have no record of it. It's gone forever. So the church ought to be the one place there's no such word as foreigner. Countries have that word. Cultures have that word. God never looks at a human being and says, foreigner. He says, I want that person for my son or my daughter because people matter to God. One more piece to this story and I close. God's talking to Jonah. Jonah's ticked off about the gourd, and he's ticked off because Nineveh's not burning, and God goes into this little parable. Jonah, you've been concerned about this dumb gourd, although you didn't make it, you didn't tend to it, you didn't make it grow, and should I not have concern for a great city? You're worried about a plant, I'm worried about a city and people. Should I not have great concern for this great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? I kind of love that line, being Texan, lots of cows out there, God said. Got to watch out for my cows. God, it's a funny thing. Love wins. You know, when sin wins, everybody loses. Even creation loses. Creation gets mistreated. Sin is the violation of God's order, God's beauty. But when grace wins, it's good news for everybody. Good news for Nineveh, even good news for the created order, even for the animals when grace wins. Kind of cool. The, the climax of the story is that now when God asked Jonah a question, Jonah, you're concerned about your shade tree. You're concerned about Israel, and you want to have Nineveh destroyed. If it's right for you to be concerned about some people, isn't it right for me to be concerned about all people? Shouldn't we want grace to come to everybody? Don't you get it, Jonah? And reading this, I'm hoping Jonah gets it and, and maybe says, I'm making this up. Oh, God, I've been such a smart, I can't say that word, a smart rear end, a resentful person. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Make me a vessel of grace. Give me a tender heart like yours. Or will Jonah just hold on to his prejudice, his arrogance, his self-righteousness, and stupid pride? We don't know. We never find out. The story ends with Jonah sitting there. Seems like a crummy way to end the story. Why would a writer do that? Why? With such a great story with an unresolved ending. Now, remember, 
the story of the prodigal son, three characters in the story, a loving father, a younger son who's rebellious, wicked, who runs away but ends up repenting. And there's the older brother who thinks because of his obedience, he's self-righteous, judges his brother. He's so proud he's never done this or never done that. He's full of pride. He's unloving. Well, the father in the Jonah story is God. The younger son who is wicked and then repents is Nineveh. And the older brother who is arrogant, superior, and judgmental and doesn't want the brother back, that's Jonah. And God is speaking to Jonah like the father spoke to his oldest son. Hey, this brother of yours was lost. He's now found. He was dead. Now he's alive. Come on, son. Shouldn't we celebrate? Shouldn't we rejoice? Isn't it right, son? And guess what the son says? We never find out. He never responds. We're just left wondering about that question, but we never find out how he responded. And the point of the story is not that Jonah had a decision to make. The point of the story is that you have a decision to make, I have a decision to make because it's all of our stories. If you just tie up the end of the story nicely, everybody can hear it, walk away, smile, and dismiss it. But he leaves it unresolved so people can't just walk away. They've got to keep working it out. It lingers in the mind. They can't sleep at night. It keeps them up. And that's the idea. What will you say? How will you respond? Because now it's our story. How will you respond when God shows grace to people you don't like? When you find out God doesn't feel like you feel towards people you've been taught not to like. And all of us have been messed with, with people, with politics, with media, with friends, with our culture, with our races. We've all been messed with. And God comes to say, look, if you want to be in my kingdom and you want to think like I think, if you watch my word, I want you to... I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'd like you to start thinking like I think. I don't hate everybody. I poured all my hatred and wrath on my son so you could have my mercy and my grace. I'm thinking like, Buddha ain't going to do that. All these other religions want you to climb up the ladder, beat yourself up, wear a suicide pack, count beads, don't do this, don't eat that. And God says, what a joke. You never get to God. God says, I'll come down and I'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'll keep the law, I'll live a perfect life, and I'll take your judgment and death so you can have life. Wow. I guess we've heard that so much. Doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean a thing. People don't care, don't serve, don't give, don't love. They just take what they want and walk away like a buffet. But it affected me. It changed my life. And the more I get closer to God, I think the more generous I get in my spirit towards people. I, there's no room for any hatred or judgment. Everybody that's not like me doesn't hate God, and God doesn't hate. And God can give them the same grace He gave to you. The same blood Jesus shed to save me is the same blood it'll take to save them. And if you think God can't do it, He can do it without you or with you. But boy, I'd like Him to do it with us. You know, I'd like to, I wish we could empty every men's club, strip club, whatever club around this town, and had all those people in here to hear, because none of them have a background where they've heard good news. God hates me. I, I'm no good. They probably, I forget the name of the girl. I can't believe my mind just went blank. Uh, Rhonda, you're no good, you're no good. Linda Ronstadt. 
You're no good, you're no good, you're no good. Baby, you're no good. About time you get healed and get over it, I'm going to say it again. And that's what the devil plays in your mind. And God says, look, I took your no good on the cross for myself. And you don't owe me anything except to receive me. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.